Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred six point five FM Los Angeles. One hundred two point three FM Riverside. And one hundred five zero AM Palm Springs. Joining us tonight, we have uh, Annie Jacobson. Uh, she was the author of Operation Paperclip. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Start with uh, a little bit about your history first before we get into the uh, the subject. Um, uh, Tell, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I'm an author. I'm a journalist. I wrote for the Los Angeles Times Magazine back when it was still up and running. And I write now about war and weapons and the military and intelligence programs that keep them secret. That's fantastic. How did you get into the research on, on the Nazi scientists, the Operation Paperclip? When I was writing my uh, previous book, Area 51, I kept coming across these two uh, Nazi aircraft designer called the Horton Brothers. They had an influence on some American aircraft designs after the war. And what particularly interested me was that the boss of the Horton Brothers was a guy named Siegfried Knaemeyer. He was a colonel in the Luftwaffe. And he was so important to the Luftwaffe, that's the German Air Force, that the head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring, called Siegfried Knaemeyer my boy. And any of the technological achievements that needed to move through Luftwaffe went through Knaemeyer's desk, in essence. So he was extraordinarily important to the Third Reich. And researching uh, Area 51, I found out that after the war, Siegfried Knaemeyer came to the United States as part of this Operation Paperclip. And he became so important to the Department of Defense 
while he lived and worked in the United States for the rest of his life, that when he retired from the U.S. Air Force in the 1970s, he was given a, an award called the Distinguished Civilian Service Award. That's the highest award that the Pentagon gives to scientists. And I thought to myself, how on earth does someone go from being one of the most important technical people to the German Luftwaffe during Nazi Germany to being one of the most important people to the U.S. Air Force technical world uh, in the United States during the Cold War. And that is what really made me want to research Operation Paperclip. So how did President Truman play into this? Like, did he know this was going on, or did he initiate this? Well, go back in time to the early days of the, um, or rather the last days of the Reich. And so it's 1945, that brutal winter, and Allied forces are moving across the continent, headed toward Munich and Berlin. And embedded with these soldiers who are fighting are U.S. scientists. And it is the job of the U.S. scientists to locate and capture the Nazi weapons that are all across Germany, usually in bunkers or in underground weapons facilities, because the Nazis were so far ahead of everyone in terms of military technology. And so as these scientists are coming across these weapons facilities, they're also coming across the scientists. And so Operation Paperclip emerged as kind of a loose idea among different military agencies, be it naval intelligence, the Army Air Forces, and so on. These different groups, Army Ordnance, had orders from their own bosses at the War Department at the Pentagon to find these weapons. And when they found the scientists, they started writing cables back. And I, and I wrote, I accessed many of these for my reporting. The cables back say, you know, I've, I've got the weapons, but, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, now we also have these scientists. We've got this great information from them. And then slowly this idea emerges to actually bring the scientists to the United States. Hmm. Truman so, was not know, did not know about that um, until much, much later on, until it was actually a real working program. Wow. And, and how did the general public feel about this? Or I guess they didn't really know, did they? Well, that's a great question, and, and it was important that the War Department handle that because once the decisions were made to start bringing them back to the United States, and it began really with the rocket team, Warner Von Braun, who later became the head of the American Space Program, was a Nazi scientist. He worked very closely with Hitler during the war, and he was in charge of the V-2 rocket, and that was top on the list of what the uh, American scientists wanted to capture. And so we captured a 100 V-2s, literally, that had Hitler's name on them, and we shipped them back to the United States, where they wound up at the White Sands Missile Base in New Mexico. And we took Von Braun and 113 of his rocket science colleagues to the United States as well. And so the War Department, this was all very top secret, um, but the War Department knew, as you asked, you know, how is this going to work if, um, you know, German-speaking scientists suddenly start appearing in the United States at different military bases? You can really only keep that secret for so long. These guys had seriously thick German accidents, accents, and many of them actually had those notorious dueling scars. 
And so the War Department came up with a very cheeky public relations campaign to promote this idea that the Germans that were in the United States were the good Germans and that these Germans had been somehow hiding out during the war and, you know, like sort of walking around in the darkness, which was, of course, absolutely apocryphal. This couldn't have been further from the truth. Many of these scientists worked in Hitler's inner circle. And, and uh, Werner von Braun, he um, he actually became a celebrity, didn't he? He was on, like, uh, TV. Wasn't he on D- Disney? And Yes, he did. And when he was on that TV show, something like 42 million Americans tuned in, breaking records for TV watching at the time. He was absolutely a celebrity. And, you know, space flight in the United States in the 1950s captured everybody's imagination. Here we were locked in this really dangerous, life-threatening Cold War with the Soviets that had it turned hot, you know, I mean, the world could have ended in a nuclear annihilation, literally, um, or certainly civilization. And so there was so much brewing underneath the surface to be afraid of that the idea of space travel was kind of like a fight, a flight to fancy, you know. And, and Americans were consumed with it. These were on the covers of magazines and newspapers, and, and Von Brown led the efforts. And the, uh, the, the government did a wonderful job at helping Von Braun to keep his past secret. And, but he wasn't really the, uh, the, the the kind of the real brains, or I guess he probably probably was, but what about our, our author Rudolph? Well, okay, so in terms of brains, I would say that uh, Von Braun was most definitely the brains of the rocket program. He was the chief scientist, and he was by most counts really a brilliant scientist and he he really was a visionary he was also you know perfectly willing to lend his rocketry for military superiority so he was kind of a very faustian character but arthur rudolph was a not so intelligent fellow and in fact one of the most interesting details i came across in my research and arthur rudolph for anyone most people are probably not familiar with him but he was the father he's called the father of the saturn rocket and that Saturn rocket is what allowed the Apollo missions to get to the moon. Um, but what's interesting is that Rudolph, I learned, didn't have anything other than a high school diploma. And in a world of very um, sort of elitist German scientists where having a Ph.D. was a very big deal, Arthur Rudolph was kind of a real dunce. And he, what he lacked in brains he made up for in cunning and he was in charge of the slave labor program during the war that allowed the nazis to build the v2 rocket underground in the last months of the war when they were being you know pummeled by bombs from the allied forces and so their their original um, rocket facility at Pinamunde had been bombed and they moved underground and Rudolph was in charge. He was the real sort of dark-hearted, you know, uh, workmeister of these laborers, so many of whom died. And after the war, as I write in my book, and it, it, this is sort of a very dramatic thing that comes forth in these historical documents which are now declassified, you see that Arthur Rudolph really made a deal, a kind of quid pro quo with Von Braun that went along the lines of bring me, you know, make me part of your team and I won't reveal what I know about the slave labor program at Nordhausen. 
Wow. And, but Rudolph ended up with kind of a, he ended up getting kicked out, didn't he, eventually? That's right, and he was actually the only paperclip that had that fateful ending, and it's kind of like a, you know, it's a very interesting, ironic end, because he was um, investigated by the Department of Justice in the 80s, and it what it came down to was he was told when they learned about his war crimes, he was told, you may either leave and go back to Germany, or you can stay here and face a jury uh, for prosecution for these crimes. And he decided to keep his pension and go back to Germany. And so he died in Germany. Wow. Well, why, why did they single him out? What was different about him that they actually um, kind of forced him out or were going to try him? Yes. Well, that's a very important question, and it has to do with evidence. Um, and something that I really worked very diligently with, I believe, in this book, to present readers with evidence. Um, in other words, you can, it, you know, there was 1,200 German scientists who came to the United States after World War II. Was each and every one of them a Nazi? The cases need to be looked at individually. And in my book, Operation Paperclip, I show the readers the lives of 21 of these scientists that I found to be particularly compelling. And I take you through their pre-war lives, their during-the-war lives, and then what happened to them, how they were, you know, brought over here as part of Operation Paperclip, and then what happened to them later. And in some cases, they're being, they're tied to war crimes is absolutely explicit. And in other cases, it's vague, or it's suggestive. Um, in the case of Rudolph, there was actual evidence against him from other Nazis who testified against him and said that he was directly involved in the hanging of a number of those slave laborers we were just talking about, the underground factory workers who had revolted against their Nazi SS, you know, brutal, brutal captors. And they revolted and they were hung and they were hung inside this underground tunnel facility so that, you know, as a show to the other laborers, if you if you act up, you too will be hanged. And the hanging took place um, at the behest of Arthur Rudolph. And that evidence is pretty clear. And that is why the Justice Department was able to come to him, you know, with no uncertain terms and say, here's what we have against you. How would you like to stand up, uh, you know, in a trial about this? And he, you know, he read the message and he left. And so with the uh, Nazis... The Russians were probably just as anxious to get their hands on some of these scientists as the U.S. Um, uh, so did they get any good ones, as we would say? Or Well, that's the conundrum of paperclip, um, and it became a real sales point uh, in, at the Pentagon because paperclip was run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff out of an office at the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And any naysayers to the program, any of those who, you know, said, wait a minute, why would we, why do we want to bring these Nazis to our country and make them American citizens and give them these, you know, important jobs? Well, the response would be, if we don't get them, then the Russians surely will. And that became uh, an important and in many ways a legitimate um, argument. On the other side of things, in Russia, I do examine that a bit. Those documents are much harder to access. The Russian version of Oper 
Operation Paperclip was called Operation Ostiavem. And because the Russians and the Germans hated one another so deeply um, from the war, from what had, what had transpired between the two nations during the war, the Germans that were captured by the Russians, the scientists, were considered second-class scientists. In other words, the Russians were the first-class scientists, and these Germans were kind of the lowly, you know, engineers, and they were they did not have access to the top-secret documents that the Russians did. Unlike the Americans, who pretty much made these scientists their top-tier uh, scientists on some of these weapons programs, mm. and so the real question is, you know, was it necessary? Because in many ways the Russians were ahead of the Americans in the early days of the Cold War in terms of weapons technology, certainly in missiles. And when we left off, we were talking about uh, the scientists. So how far were the Germans ahead of the Russians and Americans in science? The Germans were a decade. The Nazis were a decade ahead. I mean, the, the amount of technology that they had amassed during the war was remarkable and uh, a real testament to the mobilization of the entire scientific intelligence community um, toward the war effort and speaks to that idea that there was no such thing as a benign German scientist during the war because they were all put into service for the Reich. And so they, 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 were, they were doing chemical weapons, weren't they? They were leading in chemical weapons. In fact, I think one of the most dramatic uh, parts of the story of Operation Paperclip is, is happens early in, in my telling of the book. My telling of the story is when when the Allied scientists, the chemical weapons experts on our side, are you know the war's not even over and we're pushing into Germany and we're coming across these weapons cache and we're finding chemical weapons, nerve agents, sarin gas that we didn't even know existed and the Nazis had advanced the technology so far that they had created and refined these nerve agents and had an entire system whereby the nerve agents were loaded onto bombs and were actually ready to be loaded onto Luftwaffe planes and dropped and so that's one of the great mysteries of of the wars why those chemical weapons were never used because they could have been. I mean, they were ready to roll. Well, and and why didn't uh, why didn't Hitler pursue this? Like, especially the uh, chemicals, and and even the atomic research. Because if they would have had the bomb, uh, they probably would have won the war. Absolutely. Well, I found I certainly found an answer to the to the question of the atomic um, energy in 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 the writings of Albert Speer, who was in charge of all weapons. Um, and he was convicted and tried at Nuremberg. But what he said that he had a conversation with Adolf Hitler um, early on about pursuing the atomic bomb, and Hitler said to Speer, according to Speer, that he didn't want to pursue it because atomic science was Jewish science. Oh. But that gives you a kind of real ironic twist to this idea that... Um, had Hitler not had that anti-Semitic concept 
and had pursued atomic energy, I think you're absolutely right that they would have had the atomic bomb. Yeah, I mean, uh, it would make sense, but I guess, like you said, it's ironic. He didn't... Uh, <laughs> Didn't, didn't care for that. And uh, but that's a quote. That's a quote from Spear, and it's a really it's a really powerful one. But the chemical weapons are interesting because um, you asked why we didn't didn't use those, and, and I certainly don't know. But I read a lot of different opinions um, from historians over the decades about why why that is. And I think the best answer, or at least the most intriguing one, is a personal anecdote about Hitler, which is that. You know, Hitler was a soldier in World War One, and he was uh, knocked out by mustard gas in a battle right toward the end of the war. And so he essentially missed the end of the war. He woke up in a hospital, and Germany had surrendered. And the thinking goes is that he associated chemical weapons with complete defeat, Germany's complete defeat which is another odd thing to wrap your head around, but um, it was the closest thing to the, to the best answer I could come up with. And uh, what other, well, there was a few other, I guess there was quite a few of these scientists, like you say, the 1,200. Uh, most people think of uh, just kind of maybe 10 people. Um, was there any that really stuck out? What, who, one of whom stuck out for me just beyond beyond belief is the story of Major General Dr. Walter Schreiber. And he was the Surgeon General of the Third Reich. So if you can imagine that title um, and all that it stands for and all that must have gone on in the name of that title, Surgeon General of the Third Reich. And then if you can try and stretch your imagination to the true fact that Walter Shriver became part of Operation Paperclip and was living and working in Texas before he was discovered and forced to leave the country. It's just really a, a, a remarkable, it's just a remarkable conceit. And so now, now prior to the war, um, what about the Nazi supporters like like um, Henry Ford and and other businesses in the U.S. Now, they, they sort of rally behind or get together with them and, and sort of support them? You know, I didn't address the civilian um, entanglements between, and the pre-war civilian entanglements between um, America and Nazi Germany. The focus of the book is really on the post-war effort by the United Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...United States to bring these guys to the United States. So how I would imagine that those corporations did, you know, went to great lengths to distance themselves from the Nazis um, after the war, because, of course, the reason why they were, you know, friendly before the war was because they figured that the Germans might win. Right. And so, and how did the military react then? So you followed the military. So some of the big officers that were over fighting the Nazis, were they like... Uh, happy about the scientists coming over and people that they were kind of trying to kill before? You know, I think that's the, one of the great dramas of the, of the story um, because, you know, you really, 
and I tried to put myself into the shoes of some of these generals that you ask about, and I was able to do that in one instance, really to kind of like a shocking conclusion, with an American general named General Lukes, who was in charge of the chemical weapons for the United States. And um, it was his job to work with the Nazi chemical weapons scientists. And these guys were such hot potatoes, that's what they called them. In other words, they were so closely tied to Hitler's inner circle that a number of them we could not bring to the United States because it would just be, it would be far too scandalous if, it, if, they, if their identities were revealed. And so General Luke set up shop in Heidelberg because, of course, you know, we, we occupied uh, post-war Germany and we had a lot of military bases there. And so General Luke's used to hold these round-table discussions with about eight of the highest-ranking chemical weapons experts, the Nazi chemical weapons experts, at his home um, on Sunday afternoons right after the war. And he kept a journal. And he later donated these journals after he died to uh, an archive, um, a military archive, and I was able to locate them and read through them. And some of the, I mean, many of the quotes are in the book, but they're just astonishing because I would say to myself, like, can I really be reading this that an American general is writing in his journal, you know, um, you know, von Klenk is a nice chap, and then writes in parentheses, close colleague of Hitler's during the war. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's literally along the lines of what was said. And then, you know, I hope the government gives us more funding for our chemical weapons programs. Um, those Russians are a real threat. And so you see in this kind of longhand journal what's going on, which is that, um, at least my take on it, is the general saying, you know, the past is the past, war is war, and we've got a new enemy. Um, and now, now in the aftermath, now have you talked to any of the children of, of these uh, Nazi scientists or any of the grandchildren or any of the family? So I did, and I feel as if that's something that really, certainly for my work as a journalist, added you know, exponentially to my understanding of the psyche of some of these men and their motivations and their ideas, their ideology, their Nazi party ideology. Um, certainly the children, who many of whom were Hitler youth during the war, because these, these are now, the children are now in their 70s and 80s. Um, the children didn't, you know, didn't know of father's activities during the war. But there's family lore that comes into play and there's also father's papers that came into play in many of these situations. Um, I was in Germany interviewing the son of Dr. Kurt Bloma, who was Hitler's biological weapons maker. And Dr. Kurt Bloma was so high-ranking that he wore what was called the Golden Party Badge pin, and that meant that the Fuhrer, Hitler, favored you. That, you know, it was a real honor to have that pin. And, um, you know, the son of Bloma had never given an interview before. He was a very courageous individual, uh, shared with me a lot of interesting insight, you know, about his father and uh, just the, you know, you could feel the tragedy of all of this. And Bloma, by the way, was um, 
was tried at Nuremberg and was acquitted. But the son actually pulled down a number of um, thick books from his bookshelf and handed them to me. And they had belonged to his father and they were uh, used at Nuremberg um, as trial documents. And he said, you know, I don't need these and you do. And he, and he gave them to me. And so as a journalist, when you have that kind of um, access and connection and willingness on the part of these very close sources, I think that it gives the narrative, uh, you know, it illuminates things that are dark. And I, I'm certainly, I mean, it's an incredibly, writing this book was, um, you know, I want to say it was an honor and a privilege. It was also incredibly dark. I interviewed a number of um, concentration camp victims who survived, who, you know, were brutalized by the colleagues of many of these um scientists and so you know complicated stuff but uh but but important yeah and so now none of these scientists would be alive today would they as far as i know none of the original uh, paperclip scientists are alive yeah so you never had any communication with any of them i guess personally um no i mean they've they've been most of them the last the le- of the of the ones that I write about, of the 21, Theodore Benziger died the most recently in 1995. I mean, most of them were born, um, you know, either right at the turn of the century, and they were kind of officers that were 40 during the war, and some of the younger, like really brilliant scientists, were maybe born in you know 1910. Um, so that kind of made them, you know, when the war really got going, it put them in their in their 20s, and. But they, they would all, and that's why so many of these documents were classified until the government has a situation with individuals where they classify anything having to do with them until 125 years after their birth, because that would indicate that they would be dead. Um, and so in a couple situations, I was able to have some of those files uh, declassified earlier, um, earlier than that 125 years. Right. And so um, what was the tie, I, I guess I would say, um, with the Illuminati and that and John McCloy? Well, John McCloy was the U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, and he is, you know, often associated with a number of very dark and conspiratorial ideas, absolutely. He was the uh, first president of the World Bank. Um, after serving Stimson in the War Department during the war, and then he became High Commissioner for Germany, and he made a lot of very controversial moves and um, very undemocratic moves, including the release of countless Nazi convicted Nazi war criminals from from Nuremberg. You know, they had been convicted at Nuremberg, and they were held in a prison in Germany called Landsberg Prison, and McCloy released them on the idea that. Uh, the Cold War was heating up, and we needed Germany to be our friends. And, you know, the German um, Adenauer said, I need these guys out. They're considered, you know, they're certainly not considered war criminals in Germany. And I think that has fostered a lot of, uh, you know, ill will toward McCloy in, in the decades that have passed, that he was really acting on a secret agenda. And, 
you know, it really makes you wonder when you look at this stuff because these were convicted war criminals and why he, you know, went ahead and let them out is a, is, is still a great mystery. Right. And this all, this all really happened back in 1945 as well. Like it was starting right at the end of the war. Like uh, as in the releasing of these uh, scientists. Yes, we some of the like von Braun and his um, some of his colleagues came here in September of 1945. Um, the first paperclip scientist to arrive in America actually was here the day after the war ended because he was on a submarine um, that was captured or that surrendered off the coast of New Hampshire, and the submarine was headed to Japan, and he was on his way there with a V2 rocket and some. Uh, nuclear materials to explain to the Japanese, the Axis partners, how to use those weapons, blueprints, drawings, and whatnot. And we wanted him, and we we made him, you know, our own. So there was no, there was very little delay in in the Americans uh, acquiring the scientific uh, talents of the Nazis. And this went on, by the way, all the way until the late 50s and early 60s. We were still recruiting. Um, Nazi scientists out of Germany. Wow. And so, so how was it for you, like when you were doing the research and when you were over in Germany and uh, and, and putting together this, this book, how did uh, people in general um, react to you? Well, my experience um, with German academics is that they're incredibly transparent, um, very helpful. They have a series of archives across Germany called the Bundes Archives, and they're organized by, that, that carry the records of the Reich. They're organized by military, by, you know, the SS, that, oh, different, different ways and classifications. Um, and one always, you know, since I don't speak German, I would always have a colleague with me who was a German speaker and usually an expert in the different subjects. And so I had nothing but a great experience. Um, but it, but I was, you know, I was, I was, I was well helped. Right. And so. And, and the ge- public in general, or have they been supportive of this sort of subject, or do you find it's not so much? Or the, the only interesting uh, wall that I came up against, which was fascinating to me and merits its own expose, is the photographs. So, right after the war, you know, Hitler had a uh, a famous photographer and Goring, they all sort of had, you know, they were very, very much into their images and, you know, hundreds of thousands of photographs were taken and staged and this is a big part of the propaganda war machine. And after the war, those photographs were made public. I mean, in many regards, we captured them and released them and made them available to newspapers and journalists and historians and anyone who wanted them and there are a, there are many in the national archives as as such however what has happened since then is the children of some of those reich photographers have laid claim on these photographs that they now call intellectual property and are going around and suing anyone who continues to use the images hmm. in other words they've un, un you know they've 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 taken them back they've taken ownership back of them and said um, 
these were not yours in the first place and um and there's you know there's some really interesting stories there about um about war profiteering and i'm not sure what the answer is but i wish someone would write about it because i a couple of you know major images that i uh just did the due diligence on to make sure that i could put in my book i was surprised to find out that not only could i not use them because they were not they were no longer in the public domain but the fee to use them was just you know highway robbery what are you on to next I, I guess there's another part to what you... You've got kind of a trilogy here, don't you? Well, thank you for asking. I have a book publishing this late summer, early fall called The Pentagon's Brain. And it is essentially the completion of the trilogy of this idea of post-war military-industrial complex, where the weapons came from, I write about in uh, Operation Paperclip, uh, where they were developed, I write about in Area 51. And now in the Pentagon's brain, I take the reader through where they are headed, where we are headed. And boy, um, I mean, I think I get a little spooked at the end of every one of my books, uh, realizing, oh my goodness, how did, how did this happen? But at the end of the Pentagon's brain, you don't say, how did this happen? You say, oh my God, what is going to happen? And that's pretty shocking because I found a lot of documents that take the Pentagon all the way through 2036. Mm. So it's a 25-year forecast for what our weapons of war will look like. And they're almost all robotic. And I tell you, it, it, it's really, it's a real eye-opener. How do people get a hold of you if they want to contact you or talk to you or send you some information or something that they know? Uh, how would you recommend they do that? I have a, thank you for asking. I have a website, AnnieJacobson.com, and there's a button at the top that says um, guest book, and then there's a contact form there, and I, I get all of those requests eventually. Okay, that sounds good. And uh, just just one other thing. You know, we were interviewing uh, um, Gerard Williams, who's uh, spent five years researching, and uh, and his his idea that Hitler, you know, of course, and Eva Braun and that survived the bunker, that they were never killed there. Do you sort of, how do you feel about that theory? I, I know nothing of that. I mean, only other than sort of rumors. So I only know the story of um, a newspaper reporter named O'Donnell, who I write about in my book, who was the only American to go into the bunker um, after the war, you know, right when the Russians were in control of it, and um, and look at many things and see the bloodstains and whatnot. So I... I don't know. I don't know about the rumors, but I, I will leave you on this note, which is what's fascinating about Hitler's bunker: is that we even got the designer of Hitler's bunker, the scientist, the engineer named George Rickey, who boasted to U.S. intelligence officers after the war that he was in charge of the engineering of Hitler's bunker in Berlin, um, and he was going to be a great asset for the United States. And we scooped him up and brought him back and. And he worked on uh, the first presidential bunker, um, which is known as Raven Rock, uh, 
which was Eisen, the first you know official underground command center in the United States after the war. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're quite busy and uh, got lots going on, and we appreciate you coming on and doing the interview. Thank you so much for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.